Welcome to the Jax Jones and Martin Warner Show. On the show today, we're exploring the legacy of the Trump years, the good, the bad, and the insurrection with the best-selling author of I Alone Can Fix It, Carol Lennig. Yeah, we're very excited to talk to Carol because she's co-written two of the leading chronicles of Donald Trump's years in the White House. The previous book, A Very Stable Genius, brilliant title, has been called An Unrivaled Insight into the White House During Those Years. She's an acclaimed Washington Post journalist, Pulitzer Prize winning for public service, all sorts. The list is endless. Amazing to meet you, Carol. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Jax. Thanks, Martin. I'm glad to be here. Whereabouts are you now in the world? I'm uh, in my living room in Washington, D.C. Oh, right. We are the hub. still not inside our newsroom. <laughs> oh, man. It's, this the whole thing sucks, right? Uh, there are parts of it. You know, you can get some laundry done while you're making calls. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I really miss my colleagues at The Post. I miss, um, I think we just do better journalism when we're all in the same room. Sure. Yeah, sure. you get that hive of activity. Well, we want to start by asking, you interviewed Donald Trump for two and a half hours earlier this year when you were writing the book. It's an amazing amount of time to get with the former president and you talked about the capital election result and sort of mopped up all the issues concerning his presidency. We actually have a clip. Had Mike Pence had the courage to send it back to the legislatures, you would have had a different outcome, in my opinion. Is that what you told him to do? The vice president? I didn't tell him to do anything. What I did said, you want him to do? Uh, I thought him to do? that the election was rigged. The vice president of the United States must protect the Constitution of the United States, right? I don't believe he's just supposed to be a statue who gets these votes from the states and immediately hands them over. That's Phil Tucker. And our guest today, Carol Lennig, speaking to Donald Trump earlier this year. Carol, what did you make of him at the time? Was he defeated, subdued? I mean, he seemed pretty pumped to me. He also seemed like a guy who wanted to run for office again. Couldn't wait to get his hands back on the, you know, the sepulcher. And um, he also struck me as somebody who his narrative, his like alternative reality had kind of hardened, you know, he became more and more in the weeks after the inauguration of President Biden. And March, when we sat down to interview with him, uh, late March, he seemed to me to be a person who had convinced himself over and over again, in a million ways that the election had been stolen from him. And that the people who stormed the Capitol were like sweethearts who were just misunderstood. He said things like they were hugging and kissing the Capitol police officers, that they were warmly ushered in the doors. You know, that that's just not true. Um, we've seen the video. People were, officers were sort of uh, howling in pain and, and begging for their lives in some cases. How, how is it that America seems so polarized in their perceptions of what happened? If we just argue there are two versions, a left and a right version, how can people look at the same media and, and, and deduce a completely different outcome when you've got people climbing the walls and breaking through doors, climbing through windows, trying on artifacts inside the Senate, <laughs> sitting on chairs, and the list goes on, right? How, how can someone say that that was loving and was unforced as if it was a natural occurrence? What is, what know, is it that allows I mean, we can't do that in Britain. We can't get away with well, that. It's yeah, like yeah, the yeah. ultimate tour. <laughs> <laughs> I guess some people look at the video and see the guy with the weird antlers and the furry costume vest or whatever, and they think, oh, it's kind of a lark. But there was nothing that was a lark about the sure. storming of the Capitol. It was an insurrection. It was an attack on democracy. And it was violent. I mean, five people died that day. Um, of course, one of them was shot by a Capitol police officer as she refused to stop breaking down the glass to enter the speaker's lobby, um, where Nancy Pelosi was sort of in, in temporary hiding. Um, but but other officers died, um, and some of them have committed suicide since. That's how stressful this it was. But to your question, question about how this division um, can exist, how these two realities can coexist. I mean, Donald Trump really didn't know how to govern, didn't understand the American story, didn't understand how the levers of American government worked, and didn't care. But he was a genius at that 
that tapping into angry, fearful part of our community that feels dismissed and left behind and like the economic winds are blowing against them. And it's almost as if anything he says, because he's he's dubbed himself their defender, it's like anything he says goes. Even with, you know, palpable, demonstrable evidence to the contrary right in front of your nose. Um, recently for the book, Phil and I were interviewed and the the show has both Republican and Democratic voters calling in with questions. And some of the conservative line callers basically said a version of, I don't care what you write. I don't care if you corroborated this with Donald Trump, which we did. Um, I don't care what you say. I'm not going to believe anything that you write. And I don't know what we say to that, except that's too bad because we worked really hard to corroborate it and get it right. Did you ever challenge him on those inaccuracies about, for example, the insurrection um, during the interview? What were your emotions during that? Yeah, you know, I think that in this instance, we went down there to Mar-a-Lago to hear his responses. We'd already did our reporting. We've already, forgive me, we'd already done our reporting. We'd already interviewed more than 140 people, many of whom had served at his right-hand shoulder, um, trying to execute his agenda and his will. And we kind of knew pretty hard and fast what was true based on records, based on calendars, based on people showing us their phone emails, literally their texts. And when we sat with him, our goal was not to sort of shake him into reality. It was to hear his version, hear what he had to say, um, and not sort of bicker with him. Mm. Uh, Of course, we did confront him on a few things. But I think what he provided was, you know, a really damning portrait of a person who's stubbornly rejecting fact. Do you think the former president... um obviously at times has has appeared um, across the US um, media and and globally that is perhaps, um, you know, I think I think the term is megalomaniac, right? But but you know it, it is devoid of, of of the compassion that we might want to see in a, in a, in, a, in a president. Um, I don't know if that's true. I wonder what you make of how he felt truly. Like there's one thing denying it or being in denial that you've just lost the election and. Everything you've done has not worked. You've rolled up the, the extreme right to, to go and uh, stand up for things, perhaps not knowing how far it would have gone. But do you think the former president showed um, or has shown since then that, that he genuinely believes that there's a difference here? There's peaceful lobbying, there's peaceful protests. You can dispute whether you won or not, but this kind of behavior was wrong. That's showing compassion and true understanding of what's right and wrong. It's such a great question, Martin. And I have to tell you that getting inside Donald Trump's head is pretty tricky. You know, if you, I'm an investigative reporter for 25 years, and one of my go to reporting techniques is to really read people for deception. He doesn't show any physical signs of deception. If I was a detective, an FBI agent, some jobs that are a little bit like mine, um, I would be hard pressed to say that he shows evidence that he knows he's lying. Um, He seems convinced of it. Now, on your question about empathy and feeling, that is something that was so shocking, jaw-dropping about the reporting. In real time, we covered this presidency. But when we went back to dig deeper for the book, and I alone can fix it, Phil and I were just shocked because people who worked for the president who were huge supporters of his, who were inside the White House, inside the agencies, and wanted to help him succeed, were themselves frightened about his inability to feel for other people. His inability, forgive me, the degree to which he was willing to put human lives, American lives in danger for that temporary political high, temporary political goal of like winning the news cycle that day. You know, telling people to put bleach in their bodies to to signal that maybe there's a solution down the road. Um, telling people masks were, you know, not really that important, even though they were proven to be so effective at keeping people safe. So his lack of empathy was pretty, pretty strong. And there is one other thing I will tell you, though. He was very upset, we learned, about 
the death of George Floyd, upset because he said to his inside, you know, advisors that he knew cops that roughed people up and he knew that that happened and it was very disturbing to him. But he did not share that with the American public because he wanted to be the law and order president. But that was outrageous to him. That's so interesting because that's what I wanted to ask where you were talking about. He obviously shows empathy to the extreme right uh, and then has to manage his like public empathy with the left in order to not alienate everyone. And it's kind of like, is, is he just a crazy genius that knows how to execute these strategies and then he suppresses his feelings inside? There's no, do you see none of that? He's just a wild card. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Genius is a good word, right? I like the word, but um, <laughs> for lots of reasons, because we wrote the yeah, first book was obviously called ironic, Stable you know Genius. I mean? <laughs> yeah. But he is, I mean, say what you will about his failure to govern, his failure to feel for people. He is a genius at mastering that megaphone. And he's can, in addition to tapping into that group in America that is so uh, disenfranchised, disaffected for a better, for lack of a better word, He's not just tapped into them. He has turned up the volume on their anger and their fear. Mm. And now it's like a drug that they're hooked on. Um, he's increased their anxiety and, and, and virulence about how America's failed them. And now he's going to be their champion and savior. So quite genius in that respect. I think quite good at that. But as for how he expresses himself to the public. I found it so fascinating that he would not publicly say anything about George Floyd, express pity to the, Mm. or, or regret for the family, send out condolences, nothing of that, even though he was personally angered by it. And he he told us his, he told us his only regret as president, his only regret, and he has none, (laughs) but the only little one he'd admit to is, that he did not overrule his attorney general and his secretary of defense and unleash active duty military troops on George Floyd and Black Lives Matter protesters. He wishes he had done that, he said. A heavy man. It, 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 it's kind of shocking. Let me move on to something that's just, I'm going to just interject with, 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 with a question that's kind of in this sphere. A very stable genius, obviously, a great title for a book. And, and I remember seeing it at that press conference. I think I, think I was in uh, the Hamptons at the time. And just, I, I, I had to laugh because of the way it was, the way it was prepared. Um, you know, he walks out, summons uh, you know, a bunch of the cabinet. They're in like an arc. And, and he gets everyone to say, Did I re- was I really upset in that you know, the meeting before? Did I show that I was concerned and whatever? And he'd prepared people, coached them to come back with answers. No, you looked very calm, Mr. President, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, there you have it, I'm a very stable genius. And, and that was, I thought, comically, one of the, the best things I've heard in years in, in politics. And for you to then draw on that, it's, it stuns me because even with B- Boris Johnson here, I don't think we could get away with that. that you, you can't get away with something so in your face, uh, so slapstick, so obvious, so so, mm. gro- so it's, it's not gratuitous in, in as much that you are you are so you are bragging so much that it would get under the U, the, the British skin that they would end up <laughs> they, they would give you a vote of no confidence because they wouldn't trust what you said next. But in America, yeah. he can not only do that; he can have the most powerful people in the cabinet support that mm. statement um, and then and, and get away with it. And so it leads to this one question, and that's what is genius. When it relates to him, I wonder if the former president, listen, he's done some things that are um, that are quite clever because he actually was able to execute something. Like you said, he was able to get people uh, dial it, dial in and dial up over time. And so that's pretty powerful. We well, had but, a thousand page. Uh, what's it? The thousand accomplishments of Donald Trump, isn't it? <laughs> well, well I, I, I think there's some clearly obvious ones that, that Carol, Carol <laughs> mentioned that, that are just not that are just not there. But but it is interesting to know, is it someone that has stumbled in, in the way that he goes about his process and then realized and goes, oh, that worked. Let me carry that on. Mm-hmm. Because, I, because otherwise well, you know, he's not coordinated yeah. in other ways. And so I want, and it doesn't mean he's not smart or not clever and not a genius, but I wonder what his process is that got him to dial yeah. this, this movement up. So I think there are two things going on at the same time, Martin, uh, on the genius scale, which I'm glad you guys are fixated on. Well, one is, 
you know, look at the people in his administration he was able to whip, you know, to to call to heal. Um, an attorney general who'd been an attorney general before under George Bush, um, Bill Barr, yep. he was able to, to get Bill Barr to do what he wanted and also to be silent about the things that he didn't want to do, which we learned about. Yep. Um, he was able to commandeer Mark Esper, even though Mark Esper, his secretary of defense, was resisting him on a lot of things. Um, you know, people jokingly called Mark Esper Yesper because he would ultimately often comply with Donald Trump's insistence. Um, he had some pretty tough people that he was pushing around in his former part of his administration, John Kelly, you know, a general who was used to giving back sure. as good as he got. And, the, and it's funny how he was able to sort of beat and bash people into at least silently acquiescing. Um almost with his like brutish bullying quality, like the way he would rip people's faces off and yell at them in private meetings, private meaning, you know, all his cabinet members together, no cameras running. Mm -hmm. So he had that kind of like the big guy on the playground who's able to get everybody to just comply. That is a genius of his. He was able to do that. But on the other side of the coin, Many of the people who were worried about our democracy going off the rails that worked for Donald Trump told me and told Phil that Donald Trump was too impulsive and too chaotic and, and right. too undisciplined mm. to really right. cause the kind of damage that, I mean, obviously the country is damaged by the fracture in our country um, and the fracture that he's, the chasm he's made wider, but these folks who worked with him confided to us that their big fear is somebody who's like Donald Trump, but more organized and better at mm. attacking the democracy, that, that they feel that it's vulnerable. And he showed how vulnerable it was. Wow. That's an interesting profile that you've just described there, right? But but you, you actually make the point then that this, given that he was impulsive and disorganized, it's quite possible that the thing he was able to latch onto was the evidence of complaint and, and airing someone else's complaints just happened to serve him. Uh, but you also talk about the genius of getting people to do what they wanted. But am I right in saying, and I can't wait to hear if you've got the answer here, I can't remember in my lifetime or some of the readings I've done of an American president that has fired so many people at the, at, at the joystick of, of power, you know, in the cabinet, or people in, in government functions at, at the highest level. So he only succeeded in getting people, uh, because, you know, let's assume the presidency is a you know, hand on the tiller, a tanker. It's not supposed to move extremely fast and less urgent. And then all these people are doing their things. When they don't decide to do them or they disagree with him, he fires them. So is, is, has, did he really succeed is the first question. And two, does he go down on record as, as, the, as the former president being the person that sacked the most people in cabinet forget oh. the guys that were actually brought up on charges which is another thing <laughs> you know i, I actually have I, I wish i could say that i am the most excellent person to have analyzed this but i think it's kind of like impossible to think of a presidency that had this kind of turnover i mean yes nixon saturday night massacre but in terms of just raw volume i can't imagine another presidency right. Um, that what happened at the Nixon Saturday Night Massacre? Well, I mean, Saturday Night Massacre, like he just kept firing attorney generals until and acting attorney generals until he got somebody that was willing to do what he wanted. Um, and he wasn't really successful in that regard. But, you know, I mean, three people ended up saying goodbye. With Trump, I mean, he went through four secretaries of defense. Mm. Just a shocking number. Mm -hmm. He went through, let me think, one, two, three, four four chiefs of staff, four mm. national security advisors. You know, that's just a stunning number. That's one a year. Right, I mean, how right. kind of, how can you have any continuity of a presidency? It's, it's pretty remarkable. And, you know, one thing we learned in the first book, Stable Genius, was the president was listening to some of those senior people at the beginning. And then when he kept doing things that crossed the line, you know, for you and me, would, would land us probably in an indictment or mm -hmm. in jail. 
when he kept crossing that line and finding no consequences and mm. seeing him seeing his success without any any again no cost to the things he was doing politically um he became more emboldened and he stopped listening to the grown-ups in the room and and got rid of those people who resisted him mattis kelly forgive me his secretary of defense his chief of staff just got rid of them goodbye see you later final year for our book i alone can fix it he is starting one of the most consequential years in american history we didn't know how consequential it was going to be a lethal pandemic marching across the globe he opens that presidency feeling like he's a bit of a demigod he can do no wrong he can he's above the law and he's got a bunch of yes men around him mostly yes men mm. um and yes women uh and and when they resist him he just plows right over them or gets rid of them well, he believes that he alone can fix it. So I guess he's true to his word. He does believe that. I think he believes that still. I guess that's his other skill is the way he can convince himself of lack of truth, basically. Yeah. Psychologically, he's a really interesting character. I'm not um, a, a psychological profiler, but, you know, pretty fascinating guy who, as one source told me, truth doesn't really matter to him. This was a, a longtime friend and advisor of his the source said to me, you know, when I've said to the president, meaning Donald Trump, Mr. President, that's not true. You know what you just said, you did this, not that. Um, Trump will say, yeah, yeah, but it doesn't matter. I'm a big picture guy. That That's not mm. important. So like factual information isn't really that relevant to his overall strategy, which is the big picture, the PR war. He really believed that if he could win hearts and minds with the appearance that the pandemic wasn't lethal, that would work. But that was what that that kind of toolkit, which worked so well in the first part of the presidency, was so inadequate and so disastrous for a real crisis. You know, a, a, a pandemic doesn't respond to good spin. No, no. Would so you say in that? Um with the chasm that grew between different parts of America and different opinions and what happened that night at the Capitol, how do you feel that affects US democracy going forward? I think, again, I'd rely on those great sources who spoke to us for the book, who worked for Donald Trump, and increasingly, you know, at the Pentagon, at the Justice Department, at Homeland Security, were were very disturbed by how close the democracy came to falling off the tracks that you know that if it, think of the things that could have happened donald trump called and summoned his warriors to washington dc on january 6th he tried every which way before that to get a justice department attorney general or someone in the justice department to reject a swing state's electoral votes just so that he could continue to pursue the idea of a fraud and block a peaceful transfer of power. But but he finally, January 6th, he's finally seen that that's not going to work. He's not going to get that at the Justice Department. Everybody keeps saying no, despite the threat of being fired. And he brings his warriors January 6th. What if Mike Pence hadn't been so stubborn? Mm. What if the vice president had allowed the Secret Service to drive him over to our Air Force base and fly him somewhere else for his own safety. Would we not have, as a country, certified the election? Would the inauguration of Joe Biden not have happened? I mean, it's conceivable because Pence was necessary for that dance to proceed. And, you know, to his credit, he saw that role as important and was emphatic, despite everyone telling him, get out of the Capitol. There are people marching through this mm. Capitol right now, calling for your execution, calling for your hanging. Um, Pence said, I'm staying here and we're getting this done. Mitch McConnell. What if Mitch McConnell that day hadn't been insistent with the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of the Army? We are going back there tonight during prime time, and we are showing the people that we are finishing the job of certifying the election. What if Mitch McConnell was like, great, we're not going to certify it. Just a few other little building blocks right. could have crumbled. And then where would we have been?
Yeah. Do you think Pence actually would have had enough power to stop the confirmation of Biden's election? I think if he had gone along with what Donald Trump was requesting, it's an open question whether or not we would have had the peaceful transfer of power. Oh, wow. Wow. That's a shocking conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) A very, very shocking (laughs) conclusion. That's a scary thought, right? Right, right. Well, have you guys ever had an experience like this where you are, where you you wondered if democracy was going to hold? No. Not over here. I think we're we're damn lucky because there's other places in the world that are struggling. We've only got to turn on our TVs and look at Afghanistan. So, no. But what we have had are are, are very uh, quick runs. Um, and you know, you before you know it, you're out of an election, and and the the difference is very very marginal. We've had, you know, as you probably know, as you would have covered or at least read about it, that you know we've had a hung government and we've had to combine parties, and that's not a lot of fun because they don't get much done. And it, you you know, really the do, the dominant party goes through an identity crisis before it reforms, and so and that's because a lot of they're, they're getting rid of a lot of the people that have polarized their their views. So other than that, but that didn't lead to civil, you know, civil unrest. Mm. And what we're talking about squarely here is is people deciding to take up action or arms or whatever. And you know this thing that we are calling. And I'm not sure I've studied it, and I saw it. You know, was watched it on TV when it was happening. You know, an insurrection. It, I understand the term, and it looks nothing short of something that that um, is a challenge to power. Uh, I just don't know if there's really a definition or line of what a true insurrection is like. Is it a rogue 20 people, 1,000, you know, 2,000 people? But, but nonetheless, it was incredibly unconstructive and, and very dangerous for any democracy to, to put people that are in, you know, governing or anyone in harm's way. Um, so we never had that. Uh, we, we get in you know, rallies. The, the latest is that if people get together and lobby about a subject and you're hovering on the street, uh, they slipped a bit of legislation in so they can remove you and, and get arrested. <laughs> and that, 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 I think most people in Britain, and we're mavericks, see that as an infringement on yeah. our civil liberties. Right? I mean, if we want, I mean, that, you know, we need, we, we, need, we need the First Amendment here. But no, so the argument is we're just lucky that, that, you know, America is resilient enough that these things hopefully don't ever lead to any greater civil unrest. But, you know, with all the militias and different views, it is amazing how you've been able to maintain only a cut, you know, only one civil war, you know, and you gained your independence yeah. from the British. You know, if you look at history, you haven't had too many wars you know, on, on American ground. Well, you know, it's funny. It reminds me of something that um, a secretary, former secretary of state Rex Tillerson used to tell people in, in his inner circle. And he had a very small inner circle. Um, yeah. Uh, how does how does um, how does your view of how do you square your view of Trump personally with what you describe in your book um like do you have a a view of him that that's different to the evidence that perhaps you you can't qualify uh you know we all have a a, a view of presidents if we're following them and 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 our gut tells us one thing but the evidence points to something else how would you describe him um you know personally you know, he's inter- he's a conundrum. He's really interesting to be with. He's very, um, you know, some people who are big detractors of Donald Trump would be angry to hear this and to- angry to hear me say it. But he worked very hard to charm us. You know, he was very um, charming in his way, a very winning personality in, in the sense of gracious host. Let me have you come sit here. Are you comfortable? Um, do you have everything you need? You mm. know, telling us at the end of the interview, as he said, you know, it was a pleasure and an honor to be interviewed by you. This is a person who has called me a lot of names. He was you trying know? to charm you by uh, the sounds of it, though. Yeah, yeah, right. And, and, but in, like, and insult Carol at the same time. Uh, yeah. Right? Well, he wants you to write he, something he, nice about him. I mean, yeah, no doubt he wanted to influence the result. And we are factual reporters, Phil and I, and we're going to report the facts. Mm. And we reported the facts of the interview, right? But but I'm just saying, on top, on, I, I see why he is a successful politician. Um, I know the factual information around all of the ways he's misled the public, all the policies that he's pursued that have not benefited his base, all the ways he has failed his own supporters um, economically and and medically and um, 
informationally, all those ways that he's failed them. I know all that. But as I sit with him, I think he is a persuasive speaker. Hmm. He is a generous, warm person to be around or appears to be. And yet I know that he, um, I know from his, his closest advisors that he lacks any empathy uh, for really important parts and vulnerable parts of the American population. You know, this is a guy who in the spring, when the national security advisor and a deputy secretary of state went to him and said, you know, Wuhan is shut down, the Chinese government have blocked the borders, we need to get US government workers out of there and ship them home, fly them home for their own safety. This is now a war zone of COVID. This is a guy, a president, who in response to that said, now, wait a minute, I don't know if I want to bring those people back. That might increase my numbers, right? These are U.S. government employees Mm. in China to represent our country, and he's talking about my numbers. So, you know, he... He's a complex guy, making sure that I'm comfortable and getting a wonderful meal and um, and that I feel like a welcome guest and has a hand up to protect himself from a bad news headline that COVID numbers have spiked after he brings American workers back from Wuhan. In your mind, with this charming president, former president who had dedicated followers, what was his undoing? What stopped him getting reelected? You know, I think that um, Bill Barr, his attorney general, said it best when he privately went to Donald Trump in the spring and said, you know, I'm feeling a deja vu all over again. I went to George Bush in 1992 and I said, I think you're going to lose the election. And that's what he told Donald Trump. I think the way you are handling COVID, the, the chaotic news conferences where one day we're saying this about a public health crisis and another day Mm -hmm. we're telling you, this is how you're going to protect yourself. Another day you're, you know, Mr. President, you're telling people not to worry. Another day your medical professionals are saying, worry, worry, worry. He said that chaos is causing people to be fearful and it's going to cost you the election. It looks like a lot of infighting. It looks like you're not governing. It looks like you're not in control. And and indeed he wasn't. Um, Indeed, he didn't have an answer or a thorough response to one of the biggest health crises of a century. And if Donald Trump had taken seriously the virus in January at his first briefing and taken seriously the request of his medical professionals to send a CDC team, get a CDC team into China to understand the virus better early on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think, again, based on all the reporting we did with folks who were on his political team, that he had a, a really good chance of being reelected. When we look at um, you know, was an eight million swing, right? And 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 still, the Republicans did very well with mm. what the, the greatest voter turnout. Um, I don't know if it was ever, but it was certainly in many many years, right? And, that, and it was seventy million for the Republicans. So what you're saying is, if his management style had changed, because arguably that would also have permeated through many other decisions that he would have made, because that the way you so well articulate the chaos in in those press, re- which by the way were fun to watch, right? They were fun to watch because they were <laughs> engaging. It was like something off T. It was like something off a TV episode rather than true politics. Whether it was, you know, the detergent. Okay, it was a, a crazy statement. Not sure where it came from. It was like a but, Kardashian show. Yeah, it, right. It, it, it had the, yeah, it had this very contemporary feel. But 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 is it that that really the minute he kicked out people that didn't say what he wanted them to say or expressed not enough, they were they were missing. And it was all of them in the end, including Deborah Burks, right? It wasn't just Fauci. It was, they all started right. to go I missing. Mean, even, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were definitely MIA in one respect. I mean, they they clung onto their their jobs like, you know, cats clawing onto a tr- side of a tree when they're, something's chasing them. Um, they clawed to keep onto their jobs because they were afraid what would happen if they left, Um but but they were sidelined big time in the summer when the president was campaigning, when he was insisting on going to red states where the virus was starting to spike. 
insisting on, you know, infecting his own Secret Service agents and officers who had to be forced into the field to prepare his security in these locations where the virus was, again, thriving. Um, When he found out that his poll numbers were so bad that Biden was leading, he was like, okay, I'm doing some rallies because he was a successful campaigner. He was very good at, at drumming up support by being a physical presence at those rallies. That was his go-to. The medical professionals mm. who told him, Deborah Burks, Tony Fauci, Robert Redfield, who told him, don't go to those places, campaign by Zoom, mm. wear a mask. Mm. Those people were put in a closet. They were still doing their jobs, but they weren't allowed to get near a microphone and talk about what people needed to do to protect themselves because it was really important to him to get out there on the road. Do you think he just focused too much on on his base voters, you know, people who potentially are more less likely to have a strong view of the threat of COVID? He always has um, what I'd call played to his base. He hasn't led them. He has done what he thinks they will want to hear. For example, I mean, something as simple as this. He lost his mind about um, the health secretary, Alex Azar, convincing Mm. him in late 2019 to ban flavorings for e-cigarettes, vaping, you know, tropical thunder vaping smells or whatever they are. And the stuff that's meant to hook kids, right? Just like certain kinds of cigarettes were meant to hook kids. And by by banning this, he was he had been convinced by Azar, this health secretary, that he was going to do something so valuable for public health. But when he saw when Trump saw his poll numbers and how low they were, he was freaking out about losing the vapors. Like he mm. he he said he said, "You're going to lose me the election, Alex." Like I. I need the vapors, and now you've pissed them off. He didn't care really about the public health of these individuals. He cared about the votes of people he perceived as part of his base, and he wanted to please them. So that was really all that he all that he was focusing on. As for COVID, he was very successful in convincing this group of people that it was you know, their freedom at stake. Having to wear a mask is an insult to you. It's a, it's an Mm. interference in your life, which is kind of funny when you think about it, because in America and and many other developed countries, people are required to follow certain public health steps to get their kids into school. My kids have Mm. to have been vaccinated for rubella and, you know, measles and they can't go to school without that. We've had vaccinations for a long time. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And, and, and he made it sort of, um, you know, a, a political message that if you want to resist these steps that my doctors are pushing on you, well, that's your freedom. I credit everyone as being reasonably smart and well-informed. We certainly are when we're buying things over the internet, right? We become savvy buyers. Can we not evaluate, uh, you know, what is hypocrisy and not? Yeah, we've got Boris Johnson that, that comes down with the coronavirus really early as they're jostling around 10 Downing Street, you know, up and down the stairs. You've got super spreader events, which we don't really talk about that term much lately, but you know, the, it's not so long. In the, I think it was the Rose Garden, right, where they're hugging and everything mm-hmm. afterwards. Then the former president comes down with coronavirus, <laughs> is out of action for several days, and yet we're getting this, this mantra. I mean, it feels just like hypocrisy. Um, and I'm, totally. I, I think that that... I don't know how much people stomached, but if, if, if the goal was to get moderates to come over to the other side, perhaps it was just, I don't know if this is a big or a small undertaking for him and whether he'll fix it if he runs again, is whether he could just moderate his management style, which would have reflected in many areas, like not sacking as many people, maybe going with some more advice, letting other people take the lead, uh, maintaining you know the consensus of expertise in, in the uh, White House briefings. It sounds that you're in agreement that if we could have moderated that a bit, we could have seen a very different outcome, given it was actually reasonably close. Absolutely. I mean, and I'm basing this, I should say, not on me being a political analyst, but being a person who interviewed a ton of Donald Trump's, you know, advisors, friends, White House team, cabinet members, deputy secretaries, all those people. Um, I'm saying it based on interviews with them. They believe strongly if he had just 
instead of being an impulse uh, game day player, mm. if he had just <laughs> accepted that coronavirus was serious, a serious threat, listened to his health advisors, owned not not owned the virus like it's your fault, but owned that we as a country need to get together and fight it. If he had done that, there would have been a much larger segment of America that would not have been fearful of a reelection season for him. Um, And he had plenty of supporters who were, according to the polls, who were leaning heavily towards him, save for the COVID moment. A cra- you know, if, if what is a president in America who is handling a crisis and sort of drops the ball? That, that's, if you can't have a president mm. meet the crisis, then it, it raises questions for voters about what happens next. What if there's a nuclear war? What if there's a, a you know, attack on our soil? What if, what if, what if, what if? And the COVID handling, um, the his, Trump's insistence on happy talk about how this wasn't a real threat. That was good for spin. It wasn't actually good for a crisis. Mm. Well, before we move on to like questions about corruption and his legacy going forward, were there any other fly on the wall moments that stick out to you about how Trump conducted his leadership? I feel like there were so many that were fascinating. Um, one that always took my breath away was Trump's insistence that masks didn't work. And he'd been told over and over again that they work. But every time it happened, he would be like, really, Alex? Masks work? I mean, this was in like November <laughs> and October. We are deep into a pandemic and he months into 200,000 Americans dead, and he's still going, really? Masks work? That kind of surprised him. Um, Another moment that stunned me sort of fly on the wall was uh, his absolute uh, like gut reaction to anything that was on Fox News on the big shows, like Tucker Carlson's show. Mm -hmm. So Tucker Carlson in the late summer is airing all this incredible footage that ends up being manufactured, by the way, Um, but airing all this footage of like American cities on fire and people running through the fire with weapons. And, you know, the protesters and Black Lives Matter are looting these cities in Seattle and Portland and Kenosha. and, And this coverage that Tucker Carlson is running, some of it is fabricated in that the, the photo imagery has been merged together from different places sure. and, and, and different times. Outrageous. And, you know, that would get that would get most journalists fired in a second. But anyway, Trump is following this Tucker Carlson coverage. And what he wants to do over and over again is send those troops to those cities to knock that down, to quell that civil rights uh, protest, wherever it may be, because he wants to be the tough president who came in and and, and, you know, essentially controlled the hippies, <laughs> whatever that means. <laughs> and over and over again, the Bill Barr, Mark Esper, the Secretary of Defense, the Attorney General, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, they're called into these meetings like once a week. You know, Tucker Carlson has this on TV last night. We've got to do something. We've got to send the troops in. And, you know, at some point, Mark Milley, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, is just like, the cities are not burning. You know, I'll let you know when there's an insurrection. A real insurrection is when like bombs are at Fort Sumter. Like there are no bombs. There are no cities on fire. Local police have this under control, Mr. President. Um, But he is just so like a a call and response with Tucker Carlson's show. Um, He wants to do something because it was on Fox News. I've I've got to interject with something before we hit the themes, uh, because actually I think uh, I'd love to get your view. And if we look at Afghanistan right now, which is Mm. deeply, deeply tragic, do you think we would have seen the same outcome in terms of the U.S.'s decision and action to stick to a day, start to evacuate, you know, the falling of of the the cities, the running away of of their of their president? Um, Or or do you think that that Trump would have dealt with it differently? I have a suspicion that it would have been very similar, that they would have kept to the plan. But, I, but I'm interested in your view. 
Remember that Donald Trump campaigned on the idea of ending the endless wars? Sure. And at the very end, as we learned for the book, I Alone Can Fix It, at the very end of the presidency, Donald Trump is getting some harebrained schemes presented to him by these fringe members of his new acting, acting, acting Defense Department team. They're very new uh, at Revistes as a result of him firing Mark Esper. And these people are proposing that we get out of Afghanistan in an afternoon or in a couple of days. And this is freaking out the real Pentagon leadership, like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and, and the other Joint Chiefs, the people who had the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, etc. And they start privately discussing what are they going to do if this order to evacuate Afghanistan overnight comes down from the president? What are they going to do? Because they predict bloodshed. They predict chaos. They see a Saigon scene, right, with the last helicopter coming off the, sure. the rooftop. And they're very worried about it. it. That's not the only crazy order they're fearful of coming from Donald Trump. But that's one of them. And because they've heard rumors about it in the building. And they decide privately, maybe they should each serially resign one by one slowly, a reverse Saturday night massacre to kind of throw their bodies in front of this order to to leave Afghanistan overnight. They know it's not like you call in Greyhound and put the troops on a bus and, and you're gone and everything's fine. So I think the answer to your question is there would have been far more bloodshed and chaos if they had done it the way... Um, some of Trump's advisors were proposing. They basically were like, let's do this. It'll be a great legacy for you. You said you were going to end an endless war. Let's just end it tonight uh, <laughs> without really thinking through what that would be like. Now, it's true that what's happened with under Biden's um, reign is pretty horrible. And I think it reveals a core problem, which a great, a great reporter at my paper and friend, Craig Timberg wrote about uh, at the Washington Post. And that is that our efforts to support Afghanistan are, and this endless war has done very little to change the underlying weakness sure. of mm, that yeah. country. And, and so billions of dollars and I can't even tell you how many lives. I'm embarrassed to say I don't know the number. Um, all of that, and it's not a lot different. The core strength of the country, uh, the the democracy we allegedly were trying to help build, the stability we were trying to to enforce and reinforce, doesn't look like it was really ever there. I guess historians will look at it and and say, you know, when is it right for 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 stability to be upheld globally because there's a threat on their own you know their own sovereignty or is there other reasons to partner or to ransack a country for something and the question is you know it was all built around osama bin laden but you know that that problem had been put you know that flame had been put out and then the challenge is that there was instability and the threat of further terrorism mm. and as you said if you measure it now it looks like ever since uh, you know that problem had been eradicated. It was a band-aid on the situation because it's been ripped off, and we're in exactly the same situation. Which is, you know, it is, a, it's deeply tragic for sure. I mean, how different were Trump's plans to Biden's? Well, Trump's were just cranked up in terms of timeline. It was like, let's do this in a day or two, mm. and Biden's have been much more gradual comparatively. Yeah. We still at a major risk, though. Do you know what I mean going forward? As you said, totally. it's a band-aid. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 for yeah. sure. But 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 I think that the point just on this is that um the original going come back to the original question is it's likely to have been exacerbated. Mm. Um which is a, which is a fair point. Shall we jump onto some corruption, old In, boy? Yes, indeed. <laughs> indeed. Let's do it. <laughs> so we want to quickly touch on some of the allegations of corruption, you know, that surrounded Trump over the years, like um and how his business practice impacted his presidency. And obviously he had some enormous debts with the Deutsche Bank, uh, the chairman of which, Wilbur Ross, became his trade secretary. And so do you think certain entities like the bank, Deutsche Bank, were able to leverage the president in any way? And I know you've got some more questions around this, Martin, because it's your background in finance. Uh, by the way, that question was for me, but thank you. But I thought I'd take it. 
<laughs> Carol, do, do you remember this view? Do you have because I'm financially astute. Do, do you have a point on this? <laughs> well, you know, I think there's been some amazing reporters that I'm not, you know, uh, forgive me, amazing reporting that's been done about Deutsche Bank. And, you know, it's the president's bank, right? I mean, it was Donald Trump's bank. And there have been significant um, investigations into money laundering there, but particularly money laundering of Russian funds. And one question that remains unanswered and still highly mysterious is how Donald Trump financed so much of his early development and then later purchases of real estate and property when he really right. wasn't solvent. He, he didn't have very much money. There were friends, advisors, colleagues of his before, obviously, his presidency, who repeatedly warned people, Donald Trump doesn't have any money. He doesn't have money. He was borrowing do from Deutsche Bank and using some special access vehicles. His sons famously said before he became president that most of their money was coming from Russia. And I still think that while unanswered, that is such a fascinating question. Deutsche was his, his loan uh, epicenter. His son said they were getting a lot of their financing from Russia. Deutsche Bank did a lot of work with um, parties that, that were funded by Russian funds. So why is it that Donald Trump was so allergic to coming down hard on, on Russia when it was um, behaving mm. aggressively towards our country, when it was interfering in our elections? during his presidency, not just not just when he was running for office, but during his presidency. Why was he allergic to briefings that revealed Vladimir Putin was trying to undermine democracy at home? It, it, it just begs the question, what is it that he that he likes so much about Putin and Russia. And it can't just be that, that Vladimir Putin is a tough guy and he admires tough guys, although he does. It can't right. just be that because it was so unique the way he resisted intelligence, um, fought intelligence that was palpable and um, un incontrovertible showing Putin's efforts to attack the country. In, interestingly enough, it leads to well, it leads to a number of follow-up questions, but two big ones, and and that's if indeed there was coercion or just or just malpractice. So you know, before he becomes president, he does some deals that are a bit dodgy and whatever, gets some deposits, puts it into the you know the capital machine of America and buys a few more things. That would be one thing, but is it that? Do we think that that has extended to perhaps? You know these 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 foreign powers. Let's say Putin in this example having leverage over the U.S. government or 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 the, or the president as a result of being in a, a, a you know a, a polarizing position because he knows he's received a lot of cooperation from Russia. Um, is that? It, it, do you think that that? I mean, the problem with conspiracy theories is they're very hard to refute, right? Because there's some fact, and so I wonder like if how how much fact is there? And then the qu second question is. Do you not think by now um, we could, we should have been able to crack the conspiracy uh, of Russia in general and the connection to his family or to the former president, and you know, and, and, and ultimately get past the witch hunt and say actually there's, you know, there's hard evidence here, and and, and don't you think in the internet world that something would have come up somewhere? Um, so. You know, as a journalist, I who spent four years following the Mueller investigation and its aftermath, uh, I also feel that this question should long ago have been answered. And it, mm. it conceivably could have if uh, Bob Mueller had done what most prosecutors do when they're investigating someone, and that is pull their financial records. Um, right. Bob Mueller chose not to do that, being a sort of a Boy Scout uh trying not to be Ken Starr, you know, the famous prosecutor yeah, sure. who, kind of tr who traveled across the globe and across time and across 70 different subjects investigating Bill Clinton. 
To his credit, Bob Mueller wanted to be narrow, focused, stay on one thing. But most prosecutors looking at a a subject, not a target, but a subject, pull that person's tax returns, pull their financials, because they need to know what is it that makes this person tick? What's their conflict? What's their interest? What's their vulnerability? And that could have answered a lot of questions for us. Um, You know, Jeffrey Epstein, the late Jeffrey Epstein, was very close with Donald Trump. And he had said to, in in a huge break in their relationship, um, when they were fighting over the purchase of a Palm Beach mansion, he had warned uh, the estate handlers in Palm Beach that Donald Trump didn't have enough money of his own to buy that property. Well, who provided him with the money? Um, it's just it's just kind of interesting. To whom was Donald Trump beholden when he purchased that multi-million dollar mansion in the in Palm Beach? So I think it it should have been and it could have been answered on the issue of collusion. You know what Mueller found was pretty striking, but Bill Barr spun it in such a way to make it not so interesting, to make it more muddy. But what if you read all of those hundreds of pages of his report, what he found was that Donald Trump, candidate Donald Trump, was giddily welcoming Russian interference in the election, giddily welcoming some emails that he was pretty sure the Russians had hacked or was being told the Russians had hacked, Um, and that those would be released to harm his foe, Hillary Clinton. It's really hard to stretch um, our memory banks to a time when a president of the United States encouraged a foreign power tacitly or directly to help hurt their American foe politically, just sort of striking that that would happen. And striking that so many of Trump's Republican friends and lawmakers uh, who used to be so concerned about the great adversary of Russia um, now don't seem that upset about it. But as for collusion, I'm not suggesting that that Trump was working actively with Russian intel officers, Hmm. but he knew what the Russian government was up to and was happy that it was being done. Sure, sure. One final question on this on this point. Um, it, there's an observation I made, and I don't know if it's accurate, but I'd love to hear your view. That a lot of the people that he fired that were in that were in a position of power in his cabinet and in other government agencies, a lot of them seem to have. I'm going to put it mild, checkered paths, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and not only checkered paths, but actually, the the judicial process ended up putting people away um, so you know michael cohen okay the least of the, the worries he wasn't inside the tent he was his you know pri- private lawyer but there are other people um you know generals a lot of people that, that came under fire that perhaps um you know shouldn't have uh, perjured themselves etc etc and then ultimately they all get fired a lot of them how is it that that no one in the press forgive me if i'm wrong here in my opinion, gave a cohesive view of a president that hired a cabinet full of rascals, full of people that seemed to have had these checkered paths and were going through and either being not impeached because, you know, that was for the, for the president, but were being called to account in other ways, including were being investigated and some of them tried for crime and some indeed put in prison and indeed some even pardoned. How is it that that cohesive, that one is okay, I get it, right? You get a bad egg, you don't, you don't do your due diligence. But when you get a handful, d- doesn't that elevate to a cloud that's going to create a big storm? And you might have thought that would have shifted the conscience of, of, of America, but it didn't. <laughs> yeah, there are many times as a reporter, I was thinking this is going to shift the conscience of America, that you know, the national security advisor 24 days into his job has to resign because he's under criminal investigation, right? I mean, wow, you weren't in office very long before we figured out that just days before, you know, you got the job, you were encouraging a foreign power um, to do something untoward. The pattern is really striking. You're absolutely right. It's um, And it reminds me of what a source told us for the book about how when Donald Trump started his presidency, when he was 
president-elect Donald Trump, he essentially had like a Jabba the Hutt bar for a hiring office, you know, from Star Wars, that, that kind of chaotic scene of the bar where all sorts of interesting creatures are in different corners of the of the establishment and none of them really have any of the bona fides of the the typical government officials um and remember too that while he's choosing not from the a league for his folks to serve him in the presidency. Most of the A-League is sitting on the sidelines in the Republican Party because they served both Bushes, but they're not so sure about this guy, Donald Trump, and, and the populist message that he was spouting on the, on the campaign trail, the things he was talking about that kind of had a dog whistle about white supremacy. He's, they're not so sure they want to sign up for that. Um, and so he didn't get the A-League people. On top of that, what is the number one quality that Donald Trump prizes above anything else? It's not good government. It's not uh, effective leadership. It's not penny pinching and, and budget consciousness. It's loyalty Absolutely. to him. And so if, if loyalty to him is the primary job characteristic, then corruption you know, then breaking the law. So what? Keep in mind, again, another thing that we learned for the book was that Donald Trump wanted very soon after being elected to get rid of, like you could just universally, I'm sorry, unilaterally get rid of this as president. You can't under our laws. Um, He wanted to get rid of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which prevents and penalizes uh, American businessmen who try to bribe foreign officials and foreign governments. He thought that that was unfair to penalize that kind of bribery because it was just leveling the playing field to let American businesses bribe people. Just really a striking thing about what what his standards are and the standards he set as the model. I can't believe that. So let's talk about the future and the legacy of the Trump years. And um, we can say at this point, America's completely divided, whether it's based on the success or the failure of his presidency, however you see it. What do you see as the lasting legacy of his time in office? There are so many elements of it. Um, but I think that probably the most important, Jax, is, is, is the fact that he showed America, all of America, um, the, the, the fragility of the democracy. He took a divided, fractured nation, widened and intensified the division for his own political benefit, and showed what he could command his followers to do Mm. on his behalf, whether he was helping them or not, uh, whether his policies were helping them or not. What he showed was our democracy is was far more in peril than we realized. And those institutions that are strong are not impenetrable. There's a, um, that fragility is a, it, it's, it's not a word to be under, underestimated, especially with what we've seen in the last four years. Um, and perhaps one of the only things I can see as um, being a reminder for democracies is that you actually need two sides so you know at the end of it you've got two quibbling sides arguing uh, you know for power and he maintained a a strong view had he succeeded in destroying um you know some of that democracy and perhaps some of the left and vice versa if the left diminish the gop um it would be a very different america right we wouldn't have a two-party system based on england you know it didn't work for england 500 years ago Right, you know, we need a, a two-party system, and so he's very much enforced that. But I wonder if there's something else in the moderates' view. If you're sitting somewhere in the middle of all of this and looking at it, is that he did everything you just said? But do we, or do we, or should we, look to one, if not the most important uh, position in the world, as a role model to our to to the motherland? That sounds a, a rather broad term. Um, but, you know, the idea that you, you listen to some of the lies and some of the conjecture and you hear about the investigations and all this stuff is going on. 
and you say to yourself, maybe you don't have to like the politician, but do you want to raise your kids listening to this? Or do you want to raise your kids where lying is acceptable? Mm. And I wonder if the moderates, some of these smart, normal people that are just saying, I just want, yes, I want plain speak. Maybe I voted for him because I wanted to hear anything other than rhetoric, but you don't want to replace just rhetoric for lies. Do you think that that went through people's minds? Do you think people care enough uh, that these lies are there? Because I'm not sure. I'm shaking my head because, I mean, four years of daily mis misleading statements, omissions of fact, um, clear lies in which, and I, and I want to be careful about saying lies, because lies are those things which you tell intending um, and knowingly intending to mislead, knowing that it's false. But but we had a fairly large diet of lies and misleading statements and omissions from the president over the four years. And each time reporters would say, but, and hold up the placard that said, but, but wait a minute, you said this yesterday, now you're saying this, or you did this today, and now you're doing this. Um, confronting uh, the president with the facts, which he ignored or denied. Uh, rarely were his supporters moved or disturbed by that pattern. Uh, keep in mind, this was a person who was voted into the presidency days and weeks after it was revealed that off camera, he talked about grabbing women by the crotch mm. because he was famous and he could get away with it. Yep. I mean, that if that didn't undo him in the eyes of Americans who want a good role model for their their children, I don't really know what what could or would. He also, you know, referred to African countries as s-hole countries. Um, he was revealed by Michael Cohen to have talked about black people as um, having a lower intellect and living in, in, in squalor because they were not that smart and they would put up with this. He was um, a person who was revealed to have in multiple ways put American lives in danger, again, for that temporary political gain, personal political gain. A person who encouraged a foreign leader in Ukraine to investigate American citizens. I mean, a, a kind of a law-breaking event mm, no. <laughs> in most people's book. Yep. Um, a person who threatened to fire his attorney general if he didn't shudder the Mueller investigation. So there's a lot to unpack there that um, Trump supporters didn't blink an eye at. I mean, are the institutions so fragile? I mean, was there any doubt that Biden wouldn't be elected? Don't you think then democracy prevailed? It works. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Um, I mean, democracy prevailed for sure. For, for sure. Again, I would just cite those um, advisors who worked for Donald Trump and, and felt that in large measure it, it held because Donald Trump was not organized and efficient enough. Thanks for listening to the show, guys. Remember, we're all over the socials. And if you want to get in touch, our details are below. As always, make sure you hit like and subscribe. And we'll see you next time. Peace.